We now have the opportunity to read God's Word as confessed in Lord's Day 18. And today we will be covering the subject of the ascension into heaven of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord's Day 18, which you can find on page 532 of your book of praise. What do you confess when you say he ascended into heaven? That Christ, before the eyes of his disciples, was taken up from the earth into heaven, and that he is there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Is Christ then not with us until the end of the world as he has promised us? Christ is true man and true God. With respect to his human nature, he is no longer on earth. But with respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. But are the two natures in Christ not separated from each other if his human nature is not present wherever his divinity is? Not at all. For his divinity has no limits and is present everywhere. So it must follow that his divinity is indeed beyond the human nature which he has taken on, and nevertheless is within this human nature and remains personally united with it. How does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven before his Father. Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends a spirit as a counterpledge, by whose power we seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and not the things that are on earth. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Gospel of Luke is filled with worship. If you page through the different chapters, you'll see it coming up again and again. But it is most telling that the gospel itself is bracketed with worship. At the beginning of the gospel, we find Mary worshiping, magnifying the Lord in song. Zechariah also sings praise to the Lord. And the angels burst out in song over the fields of the trembling shepherds. Again, at the end of the gospel, Christ explains to his disciples what has happened and what has yet to happen. He commands them to spread his word throughout the nations and promises to equip them with power to carry out the task. Then, as he lifts his hand in blessing, he ascends and his disciples fall down in worship. Imagine that for a moment. Jesus Christ speaking to his disciples. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And suddenly, he's taken up from them. Congregation, this is the gospel that I proclaim to you today. Christ has ascended gloriously. And we'll see, first of all, Christ's ascension and absence. And second, Christ's presence and power. Now, before we launch into this passage, I want to pause for a moment and take special note of something in the passage that we read. In Luke 24, verse 44 to 48, we first read about how our Lord explains how all of Scripture pointed to his suffering and death, culminating in his resurrection. He opens their understanding because 
of their own accord, it's not made plain to them. As he said before, such things have been hidden from the wise and need to be revealed to his people. You can see that in Luke 10 verse 21. We can rejoice in the fact that his people have received special dispensation to understand it. Because the very same God who removes the scales from their eyes, who lets them understand everything that is told to them, that very same God does the same for us today. Every time that we open the word of God, every time that we read the gospel message, wherever it is found in scripture, it is God who opens our understanding that we can understand the fullness of it. Isn't that a wonderful thought? It's God who draws us close, who works in us that we might stand in awe of what he has done. And as the disciples' response to the opening of their minds and to the sight of his ascension and the realization of the fullness of what he had spoken to them was, as his, their response to that was worship, so too our response should be worship. Now, when Christ ascended into heaven, they did not simply stop there. The disciples did not worship in just their little enclave with just their little group. No, the ascension had a great impact on them. It was a significant event in their history. And we know this by the special attention that's given to it by Luke, the author of this gospel. The ascension of Christ does not just receive a prominent place in the life of Christ himself, although it certainly does receive it there. It's a high point, the culmination of Christ's work, and has great symbolic value, great complete value to the people of God as well. But it does not just stop there. If you look at Luke's other work, the Acts of the Apostles, you can see it referred to there again. The ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ was not just the ending and the fulfillment of his work on earth, the sign of its fulfillment, but it was also the beginning of a new phase in history. It was the beginning of the birth of the church. Beginning in Jerusalem, the church spreads out to all the world. It spreads to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But how was it able to spread this way? Imagine for a moment how it must have sounded to those listening. The disciples are preaching Christ, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. They're saying, we have Christ, the fulfillment of the Gospels. You need to believe in him. You all have sins which put you at risk of the wrath of God. But the news is good. Jesus Christ died for those who believe. And so you must acknowledge your sins, repent and believe. But who is this Christ? Where is he? They might ask in response. Oh, he's a Jew who was crucified as a criminal by the Romans, died and was resurrected, and he's no longer here because he was taken up into heaven. To us, this seems pretty straightforward because many of us were born and raised under this. But think about hearing this for the first time. It was a stumbling block to Jews. It was foolishness to the Gentiles. Now, in light of that, wouldn't it have been much easier for Christ to stay around? Wouldn't so many more people have believed in him if they had seen him? Why did he leave? 
There are two main reasons why Christ ascended into heaven. The first is symbolic. Think back for a moment to his baptism. Think back to the time when the heavens rumbled with God's spoken words in approval of his son. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Think back again to when Christ was transfigured. We read in Luke 9 that Peter was speaking to him in response to this. And then what happens? While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. What a magnificent sight that would have been. This was God speaking. So what was the point of the above two scenes? Both of them were awe-inspiring experiences. In both of them, God the Father was saying, Christ has my authority. He is sent by me. Listen to what he has to say. Be obedient to him. God's words were confirming for his disciples that Christ is not just one more false teacher. He is not just one more false messiah come to fool the people of Israel. He is legitimate. His words are authoritative. And his actions are effectual. This very same message was true with Christ's ascension as well. But it had double the value. With Christ's ascension, it was a public testimony to all of God's approval of him and of his work. More than that, it was confirmation that he needed. It, it was the confirmation that he was indeed who he said he was and that he did what he came to do. If he had just said the words, all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to me, the fact that he was resurrected might have put some weight behind it. But when God takes him up into heaven as he is blessing his disciples, that shows that Christ was not just claiming authority, but Christ legitimately has this authority. His words were not just good words, but they are authoritative words. Consider that for a moment. This has an impact for you today. When you are doing personal devotions, it's easy for the words just to wash over you. You read the words of the Sermon on the Mount, the words of Christ rebuking his disciples, the words of Christ on the cross, and it's easy for them to blend in and just become background noise. Your thoughts drift while someone else is reading and you start thinking about this past day or maybe planning for tomorrow. But let the immensity of Christ's ascension hit you for a moment. It signifies with authority that every word you read in Scripture spoken by him is true, is real, and must be obeyed. It means that every stroke of the pen in all the rest of Scripture really does point to him, as he said. And you need to recognize this, to stand in awe and to bend the knee and worship. The second reason why Christ departed and ascended was to send his Holy Spirit. While Christ left earth in his physical body, he made certain not to abandon us. As he said in John 16, but now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, 
I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Christ's physical departure allowed him to send the Holy Spirit to his followers. It was when he was enthroned in heaven that he assumed the cloak of authority and that he started to speak in authoritative action. So in this, we can see that Christ's departure, his ascension, obtained confirmation for us that everything he has completed is ours and made it possible for his Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts in the way that he does. No wonder the disciples rejoiced. They saw their beloved teacher and Lord confirmed in his work, and they knew the benefits that would come. They had a task given by him to bring all nations under him, and they knew that he would be with them personally, with each of them, through his divinity and through his spirit. And so we not, ought not to cry out to him, why did you leave? Rather, the question should be, what did I do to deserve to have you dwelling in me, to live with me in your divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit? Christ's divine nature is with us, present everywhere, even while his flesh is in heaven. His majesty, his authority is evident over our lives as he rules from heaven. His grace continues to be poured out on us as we look to heaven day after day. We have received forgiveness of sins and the promise of new life, both every day and in eternity. There's no reason to weep at Christ's departure, but instead we too may leave rejoicing at his ascension. This leads us into our second point. Christ's ascension left us with a confirmation of his message and the promise of more to come. But there is more. He's a brother. And we receive the promise that he is never absent from us. Right before he ascended into heaven, we read of him saying in the Gospel of Matthew, Lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Like we saw before, in the body, our brother and Lord is in heaven before the Father. But his divinity has no limits. And so we know that he is with us to the end of the age. But the fact that he is in heaven is of benefit to us. And this becomes a reality for us in three ways. First, Christ is in heaven as our advocate before the Father. Some of you kids might be thinking right now, well, what's an advocate? An advocate is someone who publicly supports a cause. He's a champion on behalf of the people he represents, and he speaks for them. This is what Christ does for us. While he's not with us in person, Jesus Christ is constantly working on our behalf before the Father. We read in Romans 8 verse 34 that it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Christ is always there, standing before the Father, a living reminder of the work that has been accomplished. We ought to be 
we ought to be condemned when we come before the throne. But Christ says, this man, he is mine. That woman, she is mine. My suffering has paid for that boy who is coming before you, whispering his bedtime prayer. My death has changed that little girl's death from a consequence of sin into an entrance into eternal life. Our brother is constantly there before the throne of God, in his flesh, advocating on our behalf before the Father. We know our sins won't condemn us because who is there to condemn? When we repent and ask forgiveness in Jesus' name, God sees the righteousness of Christ. He looks at us through the lens of Christ and we are clean. There is no one left to condemn. Isn't that incredible? But more than that, we have our flesh in heaven. Many of you understand the huge gap that's there between us and God. It might have crossed your mind, how can I go to heaven and stand in God's presence if I'm me and he's, well, he's God? How could I stand before the infinite? Or maybe you have even thought, I'm sinful flesh. How can God accept me being who I am? Paul touches down on this as well in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, by saying, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. This is true. But remember what happened to Christ after he was raised. He received a glorified body, one not bound to the effects of sin and decay. Now, while he was sinless, we recognize that we are not. Yet because of what he has done, we share in the promise that we too will receive a glorified body. Paul brings this to life for us in the verses that follow in 1 Corinthians, saying, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. We shall be changed. And we and will be able to stand before God. Christ as the first fruits, the proof that it is possible, and the promise that we ourselves will share in, and we will follow. And in these glorified bodies on the last day, we read elsewhere, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. What a comfort these words are. Because Christ has ascended to heaven, we will be joined with him there. He in his human nature as the first fruits of humanity and we as the harvest that follows. The third way we can see this is that Christ sends us his spirit as a counterpledge. You kids might be asking again, counterpledge? What's that? A pledge 
is a guarantee that we'll receive something. Christ is in heaven, in the flesh, as a pledge that he, as our head, will take us, his members, up to himself. A counter-pledge is like a down payment or a deposit. If you have a house, you have the promise that you will make the payment for the house. But you put down a deposit. You put down a counter-pledge to prove that, yes, you are committed to this and you will carry it on to completion. It's an action given to show that the guarantee is not empty. There's substance to it. Now, earlier, we spoke about how his ascension made it possible for the Spirit to be sent in the first place. But now we get to see what exactly this results in. Because of the Spirit of Christ, we are granted the power, the ability to seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The impact of this is huge. It has a transformational effect on the church. Consider the effect that it had on the followers of Christ shortly after his ascension. After Christ ascended, the followers of Jesus were granted his Holy Spirit and power. Remember how we saw before the fact that Christ was no longer with them, that he had ascended, how this could be a stumbling block to those who listened? But because Christ sent his Spirit, though his gospel was a stumbling block for the people of God. The Spirit worked in the hearts of those who were there, of God's elect, and the church grew by leaps and bounds. We read in Acts that after Christ's ascension, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went into an upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman Mary, with the woman and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names were about 120. And said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David. There were 120 to start with in this upper room in Jerusalem. Days later, the Holy Spirit came and filled them with power. By the time that Peter was done publicly preaching on that occasion, 3,000 were added to their number that day. Acts 2 verse 47, the Lord added to their number daily after that. Acts 4 verse 4, the number of men who believed came to be about 5,000. That's just the men, not including the women and children. Acts 4 verse 32, they are beyond numbers. A multitude of believers. This spirit that they received as a counterpledge, a promise that Christ would indeed return one day to gather us to himself. This spirit was the one who worked in them. And it's by the power of this spirit that they were able to have the courage to share the gospel with their family, with their friends, with their neighbors. It's with this spirit working in the hearts of their family, their friends, and their neighbors, that those could also be turned to Christ. 
He is a promise that dwells in our hearts too. A guarantee assuring those who believe that they too will one day ascend to meet their Savior in the air. That they too are embraced as children of God and will be ushered into heavenly joy and glory. It's the same powerful spirit who works in our hearts as well. Now consider this. If the angels rejoice when one sinner repents, imagine the rejoicing when the sun returns home. Imagine the rejoicing when all of Christ's followers are taken up. We have the guarantee that Christ is our advocate before the Father in his words, affirmed by his ascension. We have the pledge that he will take us to himself through the very existence of our earthly flesh in heaven. We have the counterpledge of the Spirit dwelling in our hearts today. What a reason that is for us to celebrate and rejoice just as the disciples did. Let us celebrate and rejoice. Amen.